What would you do if you found out your spouse had an affair? I know you'd be angry and hurt, but should you divorce right away? What options do you really have? This episode will help you address if it's really cheating, if your marriage is really over, or help you decide what is really right for you to do if your partner has been unfaithful. We'll talk about what infidelity is, why it affects so many marriages, what having an affair really means for the future of your relationship or future relationships, how to gain your sense of well-being and peace after discovering infidelity in your marriage. I'm Sharon Pastore, and this is the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Let's move forward. You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. Please welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. So this month's call, as I said, is focusing on the topic of infidelity. And if you haven't had a chance yet to read it in the follow-up email to this, Sharon can send another link to a blog article that we've put out. But statistics are very high in terms of, and we're going to hear more about this, in terms of the number of marriages that at some point cope with either emotional or physical infidelity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And it can really create a great rift in trust in a relationship. And so we wanted to be able to really bring this to the surface today, have a little bit of sharing of information, some background about it, and coping mechanisms when this is something that arises. And um, we have today a guest with us who I'm really excited to have on. Her name is Judy Rader. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist with over 15 years of experience working with families, and her specialty area is really in helping couples and individuals work through issues like infidelity, communication, conflict resolution, and also relationship enhancement. And she's been, she also has expertise in parenting issues from young, working with young children through adolescence. And so I'm really excited that she is here with us. She to have a specialty area that does focus a considerable amount of her time and work in therapy around infidelity makes her truly an expert in this area. And so we're glad that she can join us and share some of that with us today. I'm going to try possibly something new today, which is an opportunity maybe for a little bit of interaction at the end. We'll see how that goes. And so I'll give you some indication when there might be an opportunity for a question or two for Judy or myself as we go. Um, I'll give you some instructions about how to do that on the system. So I want to begin with opening this dialogue, Judy, and asking you first to give us a little bit more of an introduction to yourself and what you're hoping to bring to the table today through this conversation. Um, well, you really covered my background um, quite well. I um, have been working in the field for over 15 years, as you said, and maybe seven or eight years ago, I, I kind of got pulled into the infidelity work just because I started to get a lot of clients coming to me that... Um, we're having um, all different kinds of infidelity issues coming up, so I uh, just realized it had to be part of my focus. Um, and I guess um, today I just 
you know, I'm very honored to be a part of your conversation and to try to help um, your callers and listeners to understand kind of just uh, in a much more layered way kind of uh, warning signs and certainly when an infidelity disclosure um, comes about, there's all kinds of <clears throat> emotions that are flying and rippling and it's probably the, you know, the most um, emotionally laden um, situation that can happen in a marriage. So um, just think this is a, a great opportunity to kind of give a broad background of all the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, all the issues that surround it. Great. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So, Judy, let's let's launch right in. And the place I want to begin is really to begin by defining what we mean, because infidelity, we may have some traditional notions of what that means, but it's really become a topic that it refers, as you said, it's multi-layered. It refers to a number of different things. So let's talk about what do we mean by infidelity and generally how frequently is this cropping up in marriages for people? Okay, so traditionally, you're right, traditionally many have thought of infidelity simply in terms of physical infidelity, having a physical or sexual relationship with someone outside your marriage or dating relationship. And in fact, in early sessions, I'll often hear the accused partner say something like, um, nothing happened or we didn't do anything, by which they're implying that there was no intercourse or not much physical contact maybe. But infidelity also encompasses emotional infidelity, which is a situation where someone is regularly carving out time to spend talking or confiding in someone outside his or her primary relationship. And perhaps for me, the most useful definition of infidelity is the breaching of an emotional and or physical relationship boundary. The nature of that boundary may vary somewhat from couple to couple, but the boundaries derive from explicit or implicit agreements that partners make about what is acceptable and unacceptable in their relationship. So a a simple rule of thumb um, about whether you're crossing the line and entering into infidelity is whether you would feel comfortable sharing with your partner the level of involvement you have with a person outside your primary committed relationship, including the activities, the time devoted, and the frequency of contact. So, for example, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if the wife wouldn't feel comfortable telling her husband, um, my coworker Bob and I chatted on the phone six times today, probably for two and a half hours total, about his job worries and his complaints about his wife. If she wouldn't feel comfortable being upfront with her husband about that level of involvement with her coworker, then we'd consider that she was involved in an emotional affair. So, you know. I love that you made that distinction there and that you really gave us this sense that the emotional infidelity really can be as impactful as a physical um, infidelity, instance of infidelity, and that it really is this straying or this moving outside the boundaries of a relationship. One of the things that we also introduced in the blog article was the idea of virtual infidelity, which seems like it's a subcategory of really that emotional infidelity that it may you may not be face-to-face with a person or even on the telephone, but maybe on the internet as well, and maybe you know, there's a whole variety, whether it be Skype or through chat rooms or through other kinds of virtual medium, where we can also be having an emotional connection to somebody other than the primary partner. Are you seeing more of this crop up in your practice as well? 
Yes, absolutely. I and I think the you know the media, social media is really, really you know skyrocketing the numbers and uh, occurrences of this. And um, when you think of it, if you're spending time on the internet, um, skyping or um, chatting with somebody, and it's a regular occurrence, all that energy is being taken from your primary relationship. So <clears throat> it really doesn't matter if it's you know face to face in person or over the internet, um, it's, it's still really considered um, taking energy and creativity and emotional closeness away from your primary uh, relationship and diverting it to somebody else. So, yes. Yeah, it's something, as I'm saying, come up a lot more, too, and really difficult because it actually crosses or enters into both domains, I think, oftentimes of infidelity and sometimes addiction, too, because it is so easy to become addicted to the online time. And so what I hear from clients is that it feels like both of those things going on at the same time. Right. And and here's an interesting, um, it's a generalization, but it, you know, overall holds true that generally men are much more triggered or affected by their spouse having a physical infidelity. And women are much more triggered by their husband having an emotional one. Um, So it just kind of plays into how each gender typically leads with their closeness. Women tend to, you know, kind of lead with wanting emotional closeness. Men tend to want to lead more with physical closeness. So um, I guess the Internet <clears throat> infidelities would, um, would, would, you know, they would really probably be more along the emotional, which might trigger women more, although there's a lot of, you know, sex stuff that's happening over the Internet too. So um, it, it definitely is a huge area of uh, infidelity that's going on now. Right. So let's talk a little bit about um, how much is this occurring? How frequent is it? Because when it happens, when a partner discovers an instance or occurrence or what feels like infidelity going on in a relationship, you know, it really doesn't matter how often it happens to anybody else. It matters that it's happening to them right then. But how often is this occurring? And you mentioned something before about what some of the warning signs are, that how often is this generally occurring in marriages as far as you're, you know, you kind of see in your understanding in this field? And what are some of the key warning signs that people can look for? Okay. Or may have already noticed. The, um, the, the uh, prevalence of infidelity is just such a hard thing to gauge, um, and it's really because people are so reluctant to admit it. Um, so it really mostly is anecdotal for uh, people from practice to practice, um, but you have to believe that it's really um, increasing with all the um, Internet infidelity that's happening. So you know, people have tried to gauge the prevalence of it. There was a University of Colorado um, survey a few years ago that uh, surveyed about close to 5,000 people, and they got a significantly higher admission of infidelity by respondents that they surveyed um, anonymously than those that they surveyed in person. So there's all kinds of factors that go into really gauging, you know, in the population at large how prevalent it is. But just anecdotally in my practice, it's it's um, it just seems to be, you know, each year I seem to be getting more and more cases and I've talked to colleagues about it. It it, it just um, anecdotally seems to be very prevalent. So what are some of the warning signs? And then we'll get to, you know, what is it really and why is it arousing in a relationship? But what are some of the warning signs? And our callers may either be feeling like they're noticing them in their 
lives or they may already have noticed them and be somewhat further down the process here. But what are some of the things that typically arise? Well, certainly, you know, certain warning signs, which wouldn't have to mean an infidelity, but they very well could be, would be, you know, uh, people spending less time at home or more time on the internet. Um, so, an, you know, obviously an increased amount of time devoted to what, however they're playing out the infidelity. So if you're noticing that your partner's behavior has changed in any way, just in terms of um, how attentive he is to you or how much time he's at home or on the internet, that would be one thing. Um, often you'll see if somebody has gotten involved with somebody else, you'll start to see um, um, you know, self-improvement. Maybe they'll really start to lose weight and you know, maybe try a different hairstyle or you know, just so some behavior that seems like there's a sudden change in um, you know, their appearance or something. Again, it doesn't have to mean an infidelity, but they are certainly signs that often go along with it. Um, so the, I would say those are two major ones. And That's great, and I want to. I just want to insert something here for the caller's benefit too. Is that when we use pronouns in this call, whether Judy or I may move into a he or a she, that really the statistics are that there's a it's prevalent across both genders, and so nothing that we say implies that there is a single gender that is perhaps more guilty of right. um, infidelity or where the occurrence. Um, occurs and actually you want to correct that word guilty, but just where there's an occurrence of it because it is prevalent, whether it be same sex marriages, whether it be heterosexual marriages and relationships and on both sides of it. So that there isn't a categorization that this is only happening in one place. Right. And certainly, you know, um, whether you're a single person involved with a married person or that married person, you're both involved in an infidelity. And if you're talking about heterosexual infidelity, it's both genders. So um, there is infidelity both in, in also in same-sex um, relationships. But yeah, we're we're definitely talking about both genders pretty equally. Great. So now let's kind of get into the meat of what does it really mean when an infidelity arises? Because once it's detected in a relationship, this is, seems to be what gets the primary amount of attention. Um, but so tell us, what does it what does it really mean when this is arising in a relationship? Okay, so um, in my experience and in the literature, a very small fraction of infidelities arise from a partner feeling overly entitled meaning um, from the stance of I love my partner, she or he is very good to me, but she or he's just not enough to satisfy me. The vast majority of infidelities occur in instances where the unfaithful partners actually feel somewhat vulnerable or won down, where they feel that important physical um, and or emotional needs are not being met in their primary relationship. They've not found a way to advocate effectively to get those needs met. And they're not feeling able to easily leave the relationship, perhaps because of young children or financial issues. And so they become vulnerable to getting those needs met by another person who happens into their life and seems to offer the warmth, attentiveness, understanding, or whatever other qualities the partner felt he or she couldn't get in their primary relationship. And I'm in no way saying that the unfaithful partner is justified in responding to someone outside the marriage. Um, I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's okay, but just saying that some variation of that scenario is the story that usually emerges as to how the infidelity got started. Which is a really important thing to 
um, I think, really acknowledge that infidelity it doesn't happen in a vacuum, that generally somebody doesn't wake up one day and just say, you know, I'm bored today or, you know, I feel like going out and finding somebody else today, that it is something that happens and, it, and evolves over a course of time, as you described, for any number of reasons. We could have an entire call on this, and probably we should, as to the different reasons why it may be difficult to communicate well with a partner over time as to what the needs are that are not being fulfilled or how we're not meeting each other well, how life has taken a turn and is no longer providing something that feels important, whatever it is, that all those things that it it becomes difficult for couples to communicate, to find resolutions to those issues, and that those things build over time, which it sounds like leads to the cases of infidelity that you're describing. Right. They often, you know, effectively kind of shut down on those needs. It's like, whatever, I guess I don't need that. I guess, you know, we don't have to spend time together, whatever. But, you know, those needs are very real, so you can only shut down on that for so long. And then if somebody enters into your life that suddenly confronts you with that warmth or that attention, it's like, you know, it just kind of blows up. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, I've been missing that. So, um, yeah, it usually it's, it's usually that somebody's not going out looking for an unfaithful partner. It's that they're very vulnerable, having shut down on a lot of important needs, and then somebody happens into their life that, um, you know, feels you know feels attracted to them or something and and is kind and warm or whatever and it's kind of a step by step slippery slope right and so what are then you know when it happens it of course is going to produce a reaction in a relationship when it or when it's discovered it's going to produce a reaction in a relationship and the discovery, I imagine, can come any number of ways, um, discovering emails, you know, picking up phone calls, messages, just, you know, asking about time spent in other places, those kinds of things. The discovery can happen in any number of ways. And then what happens once that, once that discovery is made? What are some of the reactions that people have? Okay, so the most common reaction to the disclosure of a partner's infidelity or the discovery is post-traumatic stress meaning that um, the injured partner experiences some combination of um, flashbacks or intrusive thoughts, um, hypervigilance, racing thoughts, intense anxiety, and lots and lots of difficulty eating, sleeping, focusing. Um, Simply driving by a motel, whether or not um, the injured party knows for a fact that their unfaithful partner had sex with another in a motel might trigger, you know, extreme anxiety. Um, hypervigilance often takes the form of the injured party rifling through their partner's briefcase or pocketbook or scouring through emails or phone records in an attempt to get a clearer sense of the extent of the infidelity. And basically, discovering an infidelity shatters the injured partner's basic assumptions about their marriage or their primary relationship, including their beliefs about who their partner is as a person, his or her basic integrity, and the meaning of their committed relationship. And it's precisely because of such a basic understanding of such an important relationship being shattered that the injured partner is thrown into such an, such emotional disarray. And uh, that's why we really think of it as, you know, very much a traumatic experience. Absolutely. And that trauma, you know, as you described, leads to any kind, any number of ways for anxiety to manifest itself, anger, hurt to manifest itself. And that initial period of shock that somebody has, 
you know, is there a way to say how long does that typically last for people or what helps to, you know, start to move that on to another phase of reaction? Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I, you know, I've dealt with so many couples and it's just very interesting for me to, as I hear and listen to them, just to realize how many different um, experiences they have. I think the sooner that um, they can realize that the context of the relationship of their, of their relationship was very troubled. So they're not responsible for their partner having an infidelity, but they can understand that their partner is not necessarily a monster who's just going out to hurt them, but who was struggling and, you know, who made a bad choice to try to address that struggle. <clears throat> but the sooner that we can get to there, the, the sooner some of that, you know, kind of outraged and, um, um, you know, just emotions flying all over the place, the sooner that settles down. We're actually trying to get out of the right brain <clears throat> amygdala into the left brain that is kind of the smart brain that's willing to piece together a story and try to make sense of this. Um, so, um, yeah, some, some, some partners just really spend weeks and weeks just kind of venting, how could you do this? And, um, you know, I, I can't believe you did this. And they're kind of in that, they kind of stay in that outrage and other partners can move a little bit more quickly to, I hate it. I hate it, but I guess I can understand how it could have happened. And that's a lot of what the work of this therapy is to try to move from kind of that raw emotion into an understanding, not necessarily saying it's okay, but just understanding, you know, how it could happen and trying to um, work through that. Yeah, and we're going to talk, we're going to move into, you know, what options are there. And before we do, I just want to say, you know, I want to speak for people who may be on the call who, you know, may be thinking, you know, you're kidding, right? You know, that it really does feel like a monster has betrayed them or really does feel like, there isn't any forgiveness possible or even understanding possible, like let alone forgiveness. Let's not even go there. But there's been so much hurt. There's been so much. And that there's, you know, there is a lot of hurt. There is a lot of pain that's oh, in the process. And, you know, that it just really, those feelings are really absolutely normal and absolutely to be expected. And, you know, for us to really um, just acknowledging here, as you've done, and just to continue that, to say these are absolutely real. There's so much hurt in there that it would make it makes perfect sense to be having that reaction, and that the goal in our conversation is to think about you know what is the whole trajectory of this in order to be able to help couples and help an injured party to be able to move from a place where they are maybe consumed by anger and hurt into something else. Right. Exactly. Right. There, just by the very nature of a betrayal, that absolutely you know, throws people into those emotions that are very, very legitimate. You know, there there were always other options. And, and if you went behind my back and you, um, you know, broke a vow, of, uh, yeah, obviously anger and extreme hurt and anger are completely understandable. So, you know, given that we've sort of set that stage here is, you know, what are the options? So people are faced with this and it's not true. We know that every marriage ends in every marriage where there's been an infidelity ends in divorce. So, you know, once it's been discovered, once it's been named, what are the options that couples have from that point? Right. So one option, of course, is always to end the relationship immediately. And, and some people, you know, do do that. 
But the best option is usually to not decide to act uh, on that too quickly, but rather to get into couples therapy and begin to process emotions to, to get questions answered for the in injured party and then to decide once the rawness of emotions has dissipated a bit whether you want to work through the pain of the betrayal with your partner. And, of course, your partner also must be willing to do that. Some, sometimes the offending partner wants to leave the relationship, so there's a, a lot to be sorted through. But if, <clears throat> excuse me, if partners choose to work through the betrayal, um, it's important that the therapist help them to strengthen their connect connectedness of the relationship essentially helping them to affair-proof the relationship for the future. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And this includes, among other things, teaching effective communication skills, conflict resolution skills, helping them learn to advocate more assertively for unmet needs and to raise gripes about relationships more um, constructively. So I want to ask you this question, as you said, that, you know, the preferred option may be to pursue something to um, start to cope with and deal with what's happened and not to necessarily split right away. And I certainly want to chime in here as a divorce coach about this as well. But from your vantage point, what's the reason that perhaps moving right into a divorce very quickly may not be the best option for many people? I think, again, because you're really working out of just raw emotions, it's, it's more, you know, reactivity. I hate this. I, you know, it, it can often be um, – it's, it's just not your thoughtful self. And I just think over time, as emotions settle and as you begin to get a, a fuller story, again, which will, would never condone the action but might just provide some understanding of the vulnerability of your partner – um, oftentimes people re will regret that they didn't, you know, work a little, work harder to to hold on to the goodness in the marriage. The, the other really interesting thing is that if people go through infidelity repair work with a, a good therapist, they're often much closer at the other end. I, it's hard for me to tell them that early in the process, but um, in so many ways, it's very hard to, you know, hear this if anyone that's listening is uh, at all involved right now. But it can sometimes be a blessing in disguise because going through the work, the partner that injured, you know, the offending partner is working really hard to answer all the questions. He's He or she is experiencing a lot of shame and remorse, which can be very healing to the um, injured partner. And as they're beginning to do that work, they're really working as a team. Um, so there's much more of a sense of togetherness. And then again, the next job is to really kind of maintain that and keep that going. So you often come out of this at the other end much more connected and, you know, much more of a team. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And for those who decide, you know, as you provided some insight in this option of people, if they, you know, do choose to work and see is the marriage repairable, that even for those who may be convinced that it is not repairable or simply don't choose that, which is, you know, an acceptable choice as well, if it's appropriate for this individual or for the couple, that I still, I would endorse as a divorce coach, your comment about waiting a little bit and the reason would be that in the divorce process, 
when one pursues a divorce from a place of very heightened anger and a great deal of hurt is that there's a tendency to see the divorce process as an opportunity to get payback. And it's what can lead to really messy divorces where children are often dragged through or people are doing things specifically to hurt each other. And the fact is, is that the courts don't really tend to respond well to that. Divorce is not a process that heals emotional wounds. It is a financial and contractual agreement that provides for the next phase of life for both people as they're moving out of a marriage relationship into another relationship. And what happens time and time again, as I talk to my attorney colleagues, is people spending money on petition, on petitioning the court or in trying to get things that don't, won't really be supported by the legal process, but because they're angry and hurt and really then it eats up financial resources for the couple, it tends to take, make the process take much longer. So for a couple who, or someone who just wants to end things and be able to move on, it actually prolongs the process. Right. But rather spending some time in really working with grieving and working with, um, coping with the emotions that have arisen in a productive way will also make a divorce process be healthier for everybody involved if that's the choice. Right. I, I agree with you completely. You're, you're almost driven by your emotions if you don't kind of work them through and um, kind of gain some mastery over them. You know, if you process them, you can always speak from them. You know, I, I, I really am angry about this and I feel that I need to advocate for this in a divorce um, um, procedure is much different than kind of the raging anger that happens when you haven't even kind of processed them through and worked through all angles of them. And, you know, the things that you've described are, you know, really exactly true for people and both as a therapist, you know, in the side of you working through people through with working with people through their emotions perhaps working on um, with the couple and as a divorce coach, I know working with individuals who are going through this, that spending that time really helps to shift the focus from that anger and hurt into the healing. And as you said, the restoration possibly, but if not the restoration of the marriage, the restoration of the individual, because right. both the offending party and the hurt party have lost part of themselves. They've really been damaged and wounded and being able to restore and bring them back to a place of strength is important for both people and a family to be able to move forward, whether they're going to be moving together as a married family, married couple with a family or separate individuals. And if there's children involved or other family members for people to be able to move forward in a healthy way. And so getting those supports can be really critical. Um, let me ask you, in terms of um, the marriages that do recover and rebuild, um, it sounds like it would really be a very involved process and involve a lot of commitment. So what, what is, how does that happen? You know, what is it that both people really are committing to do, and what would bring a couple to actually make that choice to try to repair their marriage after something like this has occurred? Okay, well, just in general, um, there's a greater chance that the marriage will recover from an infidelity if the affair were shorter rather than longer in duration because there's something that can really be so, you know, upsetting and triggering to a partner who knows that their unfaithful partner sustained it over, you know, long, long periods of time. Um, so that's just a general um, uh, anecdote. Um, 
Also, the longer the marital relationship was and the more connected parents felt prior to the infidelity, the likelier partners will recover in general or, or, or might even just choose to work through it. So those are just two general statistics. Um, but also how effectively the infidelity repair work is done in therapy is a big predictor of outcomes. For example, there's one very important step in infidelity recovery is the injured partner's ability to get all of his or her many, many questions answered following the disclosure. And many might wonder why it would be beneficial for the injured part, party partner to find out exactly how many times his partner had sex during the affair, for example. But our nervous systems actually have less difficulty processing troubling information, for example, the number of times your partner had sex, than remaining in a perpetual state of not knowing what's what. Hence, the injured party's seemingly obsessive quest to relieve that state of not knowing. And so a lot of therapy is the therapist helping get whatever those questions are answered um, to, again, try to calm the um, nervous system. When the injured partner finally knows the full extent of what the infidelity was, they also blessedly know what it wasn't. And they now have a certain mastery over this previously emotionally unmanageable information. Their partner is no longer in a one-up position, having more information about the affair than they do, and the grieving process can now truly begin. So, you know, finding a therapist or um, counselor who can really help them and validate those questions, you know, that those questions are important, and if their partner is giving them answers that don't add up to really validate that to the partner, you know, um, um, Trust and healing can't happen until your partner finally, finally knows that you're both on the same page, that you're both totally willing to be upfront with all facets of information. So it is a process because in the beginning, the injured partner sometimes doesn't want to give the full story. Um, and it's sometimes for, you know, um, reasons of not wanting to be shamed anymore, but it's also sometimes out of fear that if they gave more uh, fuller answers that their partner might you know, get even more angry and leave. What I've found through all my work is it's really the opposite. Once they finally come clean, the partner may have a little bit more work having to, you know, kind of grieve and work through, you know, much more um, more information. Maybe it started sooner than they thought or something, but once they kind of, it really fits, okay, that makes sense. That I thought you were, you know, with her or with him um, that weekend that we were away on our vacation, you know, once it finally makes sense, I think the relief is that they finally feel that their partner is trustworthy now. Right. You know, one of the things that we didn't talk a, a lot about before, but I think is an important thing to raise here is, you know, we haven't talked about children in this, and we haven't talked about what happens when either a child is the one who discovers the infidelity or when, um, you know, how, what role children play in this for people. So can you talk a little bit about what happens and how the dynamics are different? Should it be shared with children, meaning dependent children or adult children? What happens if a child is the one who actually makes the discovery or somehow just becomes aware that something is going on? Right. Well, I think in general, 
you know, you don't want to bring kids into the process. So, you know, sometimes at the very beginning of a discovery, you might hear somebody say, you know, I, I'm so outraged, you know, your kids are going to, I'm going to tell everybody about this, you know, and that's, again, that raw emotion that you ideally don't want to act from that. <coughs> Excuse me. So if, if the kids, you know, ideally the kids are, especially if they're younger, are going to be left out of it. Um, if the kids are picking up on a lot of tension, um, I certainly wouldn't give them details of an infidelity, but I might say, you know, daddy and I are, mom, mom and I are having problems, but, you know, the reassurance, but we're working on it. You kids can relax and kind of be kids and, you know, we'll we'll handle it and certainly keep it as much away from them. If the uh, child does find out, I mean, it, it really depends on the age. Um, um, it's best not to... Uh, overwhelm them with information. So I, I would say depending on the child's age, if they find out about it, I might talk that over with a therapist because um, there's probably, you know, a million different variations on how to handle that. But secrets from children um, also cause them a lot of tension. So if they somehow found out some information and then details of it are being kept from them, Again, they don't know kind of what it is and what it isn't, and that can cause them a lot of anxiety. So I think if they found out about it and they're pretty young and you're not sure how to proceed, I would I would run that by, a, you know, a, a trusted therapist. Right, which seems like a good idea. Even, you know, I know in cases where there might be teenage children and things like that that are old enough to understand some things, but not the complexity necessarily of full relationships, but really recognizing that kids will need support as well and not to, as you said, overwhelm with information or details. And I also know it can be really difficult when when a partner's feeling really angry or hurt and they don't, you know, they they don't want this hurt for their child and their children and they don't want their children with that partner perhaps because they don't trust them at the time and all these things can lead to disclosures but really for children less information or being or taking great care with what information is disclosed and how children are talked to about it if they have any information at all or they're sensing that discomfort is a really important thing to take great care around and to get some support from a professional around. And, and also really important also to think early on about how much you're going to spread it around with friends. I mean, if you have a a trusted friend that you want to confide in, um, that's one thing. But if you're kind of out of revenge, you know, everyone's going to know about this, it's going to get back to the kids or the gossip or, you know, just information travels. So, yeah, again, that's why it's so important in the beginning of this to try to kind of take a deep breath in the long view. I know it's not easy, but to try to, you know, <clears throat> work through with a, a therapist or, you know, some really um, trusted friend just to kind of work through your emotions so they're not driving a kind of erratic, um, rash decisions about, you know, who to who to share this info with. Right. So let me, I want to ask kind of one last question as we're, you know, coming close to the end of our time here, but... You know, one of the things that really comes up a lot is, one, how does anybody recover from the shame? Again, whether you were the injured party or you were the offending party, but even in addition to the shame, the trust. And, you know, I've seen people, how will I be able to trust somebody else? Because it really is a trauma, right? So how will I ever trust somebody else again, whether it be this partner or it be another partner? How do I know this won't happen to me again? So how do people navigate through that challenge of, 
the will of overcoming the shame and the willingness to ever be trusting again. Well, the shame certainly, you know, again, as a therapist, I would really, you know, it's a process because you don't say it one time and they believe you, but um, they didn't do anything. Um, So they are just the recipient of what happened. And um, if they're thinking, if the shame is because my partner, you know, I wasn't pretty enough or, you know, all those horrible, or I wasn't, didn't, wasn't successful enough, didn't make enough money, um, you know, all that needs to be talked through. It's, it's less about you and more about what was going on for the partner that, you know, they weren't able to bring their needs to you. And I mean, there's, you know, there's just a lot to that that would have to, I'd have to hear all the permutations of what goes into that shame. But um, the the pain and the trust really comes from, <clears throat> if a couple's working this through, the um, the uh, the person who committed the affair is really the healing agent. Because as he or she <clears throat> begins to answer all the questions, they're really experiencing a lot of shame which can be healing for the partner to see, you know, that, you know, God, I'm so sorry I did this and I don't know what I was thinking. Um, and really the, the the sharing and the working through and the carving out time to answer more questions and um, go back and kind of repeat the story to try to help the injured part, party get uh, mastery over it. that's really the restitution. And again, in time, what you'll see is it really feels like teamwork. And I'm really helping the uh, person who had the affair to, like I'll often say to them, I think it's going to be really important to you each day to go to your partner and ask them, how are they doing with the infidelity today? Kind of what's coming up? What kind of post-traumatic thoughts are coming up? And do they want to carve out some time to share them with, with you? so that you can help them answer more questions, gain, you know, a little bit more mastery over this. Um, So it really becomes a teamwork thing, and they start to relate in a much closer way than they ever had. It's it's really quite beautiful to see. Um, And the trust just comes in time. You know, um, you'll you'll often hear the, you know, over time, the person that had the uh, affair saying, you know, I'm, I'm just so happy that we can you know, be this close and that I can come to you now. And um, the other person is often saying, I, you know, I recognize how distant we were. And um, so the trust just kind of comes as, a, you know, in the course of the work. And I think you hit on one of the really key things here as we're kind of in our final moments here is that all of this takes a lot of time. Yes. And healing takes time. Working through those initial raw emotions take time. takes time. Thinking about what you really want for your future and making decisions not from a place of intense emotion, but really that takes the entire, your entire life, your family's entire life, your future into perspective. It all takes time. And of course, when that hurt is first felt, it creates the need for some kind of an immediate reaction and immediate dealing. And working one's way through this, working a couple's way through this, a family's way through this, takes time and for people to be willing and able to give themselves and their families the gift of time to make the decision that's right for them to make the decision and whether that means working and restoring or whether that means bringing a separation to an ending to that marriage to allow new things in the future but to give oneself and a family the gift of time to take it slow 
and to not make major decisions from heightened places of emotion. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, again, that's why it's really very important to get into therapy with somebody who's kind of experienced it and can normalize that and um, can validate that, you know, I know you want it to be solved now and I understand that you want revenge right now and, and that's all very normal and let's see if we can slow it down because, you know, I've got a, <clears throat> the long view will tell you, you know, that I, I know you'll be much, much more relieved if you don't, you know, act in the moment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of normalizing the, the process. You're, you're absolutely right, helping them to understand that, you know, it, it does have to take time, but they'll come out much more, you know, much stronger and more certain of, um, you know, their decisions. Right, and in coaching, it becomes a really critical piece because if a couple or if one party decides that they do want divorce as an option, is that then the coaching is really supportive in being able to help separate out the emotional needs from the legal agreement that is actually being created. Because as we said earlier, the legal process is not an effective forum for really at carrying out or healing the wounds that were inflicted emotionally. And that process is really designed to support help coping with both pieces, navigating the legal process, while also supporting the emotional needs that somebody has as they're going through to keep them separate enough so that they're not interfering with one another and that the resolution on the end brings the best possible outcome for everybody involved. And so that kind of professional support in whichever direction a couple is choosing can really make the difference as to what the outcome will be, both for individuals and their ability to move on afterwards and for the health of a family in moving on afterwards. So I think, you know, Judy, I'm so grateful for the fact that we were able to have this conversation and be able to share this and hopefully bring people some both information and insight into the process and an opportunity to think about, you know, what they really want for themselves in here. And um, given all the information we covered, I was thinking we might open up for questions. I don't think we're going to be able to do that. But I do want people to know how to reach you after this if they'd like to explore any of this and also to know, you know, what other what kinds of work you do and where you might be in the community and things like that if people are in the Philadelphia area. So tell us a little bit how people can reach you if they're interested in connecting with you after this call and where they might find you around town. Okay. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I'm in Bryn Mawr um, at, at the Rosemont Plaza, 1062 Lancaster Avenue. Um, I have a webpage, which is uh, Judy Rader, J-U-D-Y-R-A-D-E-R.com, and I actually have uh, an infidelity article written uh, there that I think is uh, a takeoff or yours is a takeoff, the one that you supplied on that. Um, I'm actually going to be teaching at the Mainline School Night in a couple of weeks, um, a two-week, so two Tuesdays in a row, couple communication and conflict resolution uh, workshop, which is always actually a lot of fun. But um, that is actually speaking to this issue of, you know, how we often shut down on our needs and, and uh, don't advocate uh, effectively for unmet needs or um, share gripes effectively. So <clears throat> it sounds like it could be heavy, but it's actually a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, just um, if you go on my website, you'll, you'll see uh, articles and a little bit more about me and get my phone number and uh, – be happy to speak with any of your listeners at any point if, if uh, they wanted to reach out. 
And is there, you know, if you were to think about books that might be available, articles or things like that, if people wanted um, to pick something up by reading, what would you recommend in addition to the article they will find on your website? But are there any resources that you would say, these are really helpful to people and I recommend them a lot that you would like to share here? Yeah, two of the, two of the ones that uh, I think are most useful and pretty uh, well-known are um, After the Affair by Janice Abram Spring. Um, that's a paperback that's readily available, I'm sure, on Amazon and even in Barnes & Noble. And then Not Just Friends um, it's by Shirley Glass, and that's a very important um, work on infidelity. Great. Thanks. And Matt, I imagine people can find both of those through on Amazon or, you know, any of the booksellers like right. that. And so that's really helpful to people, you know, helpful to share with people so that people can find out where to go and where to read some more as they're coping with this process. And they're, um, both, also, they're helpful both for, you know, both both parties, the injured party and the um, affair party. So they, they really treat both ends of it. Oh, that's great. That's great. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.